Welcome back to another episode of Fax Machine. I'm Noah. I'm Rob. I'm Emily. We are so excited that so many of you listened to our first episode um, and that appear that at least some of you are excited for another one, if not surprised that we actually made it this far. Yeah. We're number two, coming out live right now. <laughs> yeah, we're just excited that you guys were excited. Um, we also got some great feedback over our social media accounts. Thanks very much for that. And in addition, we've also updated those accounts with extra content and pictures and cool information. So if you'd like to check out that extra stuff or reach out to us, definitely check out our social media accounts. We're on both Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod. And where can we find our podcast if we're looking for podcasts? Great question, Rob. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> our podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, I think is pending, but we'll keep you guys updated on that one. There's such a tease. There's yeah. such Spotify a tease. Spotify always was. <laughs> uh, Overcast, um, Pocket Cast, that's another one that I hadn't heard of. And I think we're on, sh- I had never Android heard of this one here, but Podcast Republic, which is the Android that one. That was, okay. So I don't know one, but yeah. You can find that as well. So no matter where you are, we are coming to advice or computer or, you know, I don't know if you still have a Walkman, probably not, but we'll, can we'll it, figure that out very shortly. Yeah. You know, whatever works for you works for us. It's fine. Yeah. You will be able to find our next episode on side A and side B of a tape. We will get <laughs> it to you. So in this episode, just like our first one, we have three new facts to share with you, which we will all discuss, and then we'll end with another short quiz loosely inspired by all of our facts. Let's get into the theme for tonight, which is Rise and Shine. Rob, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, sure. It's a great theme for you early morning podcast listeners, but uh, things on the show today will have something to do with either items that rise or items that shine, perhaps items of both, but all of our facts were gleaned from this comical sort of phrase that we use all the time. So rise and shine with your trivia today. So with that, let's head on over to M for our first fact. Thanks very much. So my fact for this episode is that we can deduce the presence of life on other planets by their shininess. Hmm. So I chose uh, the shine half. I see what you did there. Shine, yeah. yes. Interesting. This is made possible by a phenomenon known as planet shine, which is the faint reflection of light shining off of a planet that's beamed onto it from a nearby star. We can actually see planet shine from our own planet, in our case it's called Earth shine, by looking up at the illuminated darkened portion of a crescent moon. So you have the bright portion of the crescent moon, which is just the moon reflecting the sun, and then that portion that you can still see um, is actually created by light that is reflected off of the Earth onto the moon. That is Earth shine. So planet shine sounds like a product that's going to be available some day when we all own our own planets and we want them to make them look really nice for our neighbors well big. to me honestly it sounds like a like an even more sophisticated illegal alcohol <laughs> yeah. like, you have moonshine moonshine planet's just like so last planet century, just like a bigger more blindness inducing gut rotting bathtub <laughs> alcohol like, kids, what are you brewing in that swimming pool? Is that moonshine? Nah. Ooh, <laughs> okay, It'll good. No more questions. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Earthshine, the non-alcoholic form, was actually known as far back as the 16th century. But our ability to measure it has also been around for quite a while. This was enabled by a special telescope invented by French astronomer André Louis Dungeon. Nice. Thank you. I've been practicing since the first episode. <laughs> Consistent listeners of our show will know that Emily is garbage at French. <laughs> But I think she is. Uh, excuse me, I think you well. mean garbage. I, that is what I meant. You're right. There you go. That's sorry. what we call it. Callback. Callback. But the main remnant of his initial invention is now that we use the Dungeon. Dan- I had it so briefly. The Dungeon scale, which is applied as a rating system for the brightness of lunar eclipses. So every lunar eclipse is rated with zero being a dark, nearly invisible eclipse versus four being a very bright red-orange eclipse. But he was a really cool dude, contributed a lot to our understanding of astronomy. Uh, he was director of two major observatories in Strasbourg and Paris and was also the president of the French Astronomical Society. But my favorite part of this is that he actually lost an eye while serving in the military before beginning his illustrious career. What? So 
I just like that, that he... your favorite part? <laughs> because he found a phenomenal career where only having one eye is just fine. When he you lost look an eye in game And look passion. into the sky. There you go. See? I don't know. To me, there's something a little romantic about that. I mean, so, it is kind of works. interesting that like the thing he invented requires vision. Yeah. Did he yeah, think that like all the stars were really close? <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> so nowadays, scientists use bigger, much fancier telescopes to measure Earth shine, basically treating the moon like a big mirror. And in doing so, have discovered that information about the Earth's atmosphere and composition can be deduced from Earth shine. For example, a study that was carried out in 2011 by the European Southern Observatory found that measuring Earthshine with their VLT, which is short for Very Large Telescope, <laughs> I quite enjoyed that, they were able to extrapolate information about global cloud cover. To me, this is kind of unintuitive, but kind of cool that actually clouds reflect more light than the ocean, so they can deduce cloud cover based on the intensity of Earthshine. And in addition, the composition of gases such as oxygen and methane in our atmosphere. And they could also pick out so-called biosignatures of terrestrial life, um, one of them being known as red edge, which is essentially a marker for chlorophyll, which is produced by vegetation. Hmm. So why would they expect that there would be vegetation on another planet where life has evolved separately or... At least not from, like, plants. (laughs) Right, well, so that's the limitation, I would say, of applying this technique. Because right now we've sort of developed the method of using planet shine to deduce these things based on Earthshine by saying, we know this about our own planet. Let's see if we can then pick up these same bits of information from this data that we collect. So it does make the assumption that we're looking for life similar to that that we have on our own planet, on other planets. Right. And there are certainly people who think that that all life in the universe is common source and that we're just kind of random pockets of life that was dropped there. And that some of the things I read, based off your fact, Mm. are just fascinating theories of scientists talking about how life was scattered around and continues to be scattered around the universe and how we encounter it and may, may not even realize it. This was a field of astrobiology, which I think this whole premise kind of falls into, mm-hmm. um, looking for life in this in in the chasm of outer space. Astrobiology is a cool topic that has a lot of really reputable scientists doing really amazing work, and also has a handful of really quacky scientists with some really <laughs> just outstanding conclusions off of the data. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and I think I don't know, know if you also like went down a little rabbit hole with this. A little bit. Yeah. I I fell just head first into Wonderland looking at astrobiology. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> I mean I, what you're I think we're referring to at least in some part is like the idea of panspermia. And it's the idea that basically life anywhere could have been seeded by something that's just kind of floating around there, some sort of chemical or sort of biochemical building block maybe that uh, is being transplanted between different places by just sort of floating through space or that these kind of building blocks are you know, available in the sort of interstellar medium and like they you know maybe as we move around you know with our own solar system like kind of moves through space as a as a system we may pass through these areas and sort of collect them and it's cool yeah, the absolutely. the idea that biomolecules exist outside of earth I mean, like if you think of the universe as a huge chemistry lab where things are happening all the time then it, it kind of leads to you might get a biomolecule in in the absence of any other living thing and to that point there there are some results having found nucleotide like chemical yeah. structures in the tails yeah. of comets and in, in faraway places which is kind of fascinating when we think about them as part of this like big machine of life. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the science is really cool to read about and kind of you know makes you wonder. I want to take at least a minute to talk about one book that I found as I go to my library of obscure <laughs> <Yes>. books. <laughs> uh, this one Best is titled collection. Diseases from Space. Um, <laughs> it could have been the name of a B-movie. Instead, it's an actual scientific piece of literature written by two PhDs, Uh, in biology and in astrophysics, talking about how they think it's irrefutable that all diseases on Earth, bacteria and viral, not only originally came from space, but continue to come from space. And it is... Let's just say I'm I'm feeling very dubious. (laughs) Am, Am I dubious or do I think this is dubious? I'm having a... Before I can sort of wrap my mind are, around space doubtful. diseases, I need to and deal with my own brain diseases. <laughs> I am doubtful this, uh, this because it sounds dubious. dubious. <laughs> and and I, I wish yeah. to cast no particular ill light upon um, Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickramsing, who were the authors of this book, who both hold PhDs in their fields. 
Oh, I'm just saying I'm, I'm willing to be convinced, but I'm mm. not quite there yet. Sure. Uh, did you drop a publishing year? Out of curiosity. Yes, so the, the publishing year of this book, this was their second book together. The first, um, called Life Cloud, came out in the early 70s. This one was 1979. And... Their thesis is essentially that bacteria and viruses enter the atmosphere at such low speeds in such small masses that they won't burn up in the atmosphere the way larger things would. And they will survive, be carried into atmospheric currents, and then dropped at random on populations of human beings. And that is why we get localized epidemics. So they're saying that these bacteria came from somewhere else. Yes. And that they're similar enough to our own bacteria because... Because Those also came from somewhere else. Exactly. And every single bacteria on Earth has either dropped here in different, like, entry events or has evolved from things that dropped here. Yes. So right. nothing that looks like anything in biology that we're familiar with has ever evolved on Earth itself. Because that would be too much of a coincidence. No, so they, they do... Or make... they've done some sort of, like, horizontal transfer of, you know... Yes, at the very best, there's there's some communication. Okay. Um, they don't dispute the evolution of life on Earth for the last four billion years or however long we think life has been here. They just think life in the universe may have existed for longer and is better adapted to the universe than it is to Earth. And Earth is a very specific niche of developed life um, that doesn't exist anywhere else. And there, there are moments reading this book where you're really kind of drawn into their argument. But there are also moments of this book where it's almost laughably bad ad hoc hypothesis making. They go so far as to make a claim in this book that influenza is not transmissible person to person. <laughs> Which is, as, and I teach a course on infectious disease and like is cringe in every like I don't know which muscles are involved in cringing but I use more than that when I hear things like this do they think that the atmosphere sort of atmospheric entry is any barrier to microbes at all um so are astronauts like more susceptible to these their proposed sort of <laughs> space uh, yeah. diseases it's a fair point I, I don't really know I'm obviously highlighting the weaknesses of this book. There are a lot of interesting things this book brings up, which is the fact that bacteria can be carried in convection uh, currents. There's actually a paper that came out that hypothesized that at the center of every snowflake is a bacteria. Oh, is like the seed? Yeah, is the nucleation site in the clouds that water condenses upon. Sorry, is this, this, this is found. This is like support for their hypothesis. No, that that's just a new paper that's come out about the okay. formation of snowflakes and the ne the necessity for bacteria to be in the clouds. And wow. so there are probably hmm. um, airborne bacteria kind of rising well, and falling. There are definitely airborne bacteria, and I kind of hmm. what I kind of where I usually expect this conversation to go is like we we tend to think of the interaction of life with space as you know maybe life having come from outside, but I think another legitimate area of interest here is whether or not earth is just shedding life in the form of maybe bacteria or things like that or like what are those little uh tardigrades oh god <laughs> so, yeah. just, I mean, just as an example of something that can yeah. survive in extreme you know conditions um mm. and that we're just leaving this like cloud of like bacteria and stuff in space i don't i don't know that that's the case but i think it's really interesting to think about just like the, re sneezing the reverse transfer <laughs> you know around the sun well nasa they founded their astrobiology wing before we had left the atmosphere mm. and they were oh. concerned about it without really knowing what they were concerned about so they did take steps and they studied how much potentially microbe life they would have brought to the moon. They would have like sent on the Cassini yeah. mission. And so they, we, we as humans were very kind of good from the beginning of at least thinking about it, not necessarily executing, but being but, aware of the fact that we posed the threat to anything else. I think the fact that, you know, there are people worrying about that makes me feel a lot better. Um, <laughs> but I think that a lot of people found out about this uh, aspect of uh, NASA's extraterrestrial operations when there was a, a job posting for, do you see? this a couple maybe like a couple years ago for Ooh. a planetary protection officer do you guys remember that or maybe that was just me i, I thought it was, it, it was on social media and it went viral that there was this job basically it went for viral someone. yeah <laughs> well okay um yeah that's good <laughs> yeah, there's the planetary protection officer whose job basically is to coordinate the efforts you know around making sure that anything we send in this space is effectively sterile hmm. as well as you know making sure that anything that comes back that we've sent into space is also devoid of any contamination. So that was really interesting. Uh, can I just uh, briefly, I want to read you something about uh, people who get sick in space. Oh, please. Oh, uh, intriguing. So okay. the scale for space sickness among astronauts is uh, the Garn scale, which is both named on someone who went to space and was like famous for getting like super, super sick, <laughs> and also onomatopoeia for vomit. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> it's so appropriate that Garn. <laughs> it's like the both the Get sound and the name. Um, but uh, Garn, Edwin Jacob Garn was a Republican senator from Utah who became the first sitting member of the United States Congress to fly in space when he flew aboard the space shuttle Discovery as a payload specialist. But he just got so violently ill. They they named uh, the scale after him. So one Garn is the highest possible level of incapacitation due to space sickness. He's the maximum of his own scale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, poor guy. Yeah. So if if you went up and just felt a little off, would you be like a half Garn? Or <laughs> no, I think I think one, I think it, I don't or it's like, know. It's like it's golf out. score. Like you want to be like ten Garn. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like the lower the number, the worse it is. But I don't know what it is out of. I should have looked that up. <laughs> That's scary. All right. So with regards to now using Planet Shine as a potential readout of various characteristics of planets, we basically are able to develop the use of this technique and are hoping to now use that to make deductions about other exoplanets, particularly those that lie within the circumstellar habitable zone, um, or acutely known Goldilocks zones of stars, which are basically the region around a star wherein the temperature and atmospheric pressure um, would allow for liquid water to exist on the surface of the planet. And they're surrounded by space bears, right? Mm -hmm. That's... Yeah. Of course, like they got to fight off all the yeah. foreign invaders. <laughs> so yes, there are a few projects, some of which have unfortunately been defunded, but some of which are currently funded and ongoing or will be starting soon. For example, one that I found by the European Southern Observatory called Project Speculus, like the sweet <laughs> cookie. <laughs> Love it, but a very contrived acronym, short for Search for Habitable Planets. Eclipsing ultra cool stars. Wow. I'm so, so glad you brought that up because I found the website Doofus, which celebrates the, um, the hilariously, as Emily said, contrived efforts that astronomers make to force their uh, various uh, technologies or um, approaches into acronyms that spell out various words. DOFAS, D-O-O-F-A-A-S, stands for Dumb or Overly Forced Astronomical Acronyms Site, where you can find gems such as Angst, which is the ACS Nearby Galaxy Survey Treasury, <laughs> Batman, Badass Transit Model Calculation, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. This one, Boojums, B-O-O-J-U-M-S, which is blue objects observed just undergoing moderate starbursts. <laughs> Boojums, uh, by the way, is from Lewis Carroll's poem, The Hunting of the Snark, so it's actually ah, pretty impressive. There's uh, nice. Fat Boy, the Florida analysis tool born of yearning for high-quality scientific data. <laughs> Wait, where's, where's scientific data? <laughs> everything, everything after the Y in yearning is part of the Y. <laughs> Right. There's, there's Gadzooks exclamation point, which is the gadolinium <laughs> antineutrino detector zealously outperforming old Kamiokande super exclamation point. I read that the, the PI on that project insists on the exclamation point being there, and on the website it says, PI exists, insists on the exclamation point, exclamation point, awesome, exclamation point. <laughs> then there's, uh, there's Poopsie. Phase one observing proposal Y stem system, right? S Y stem. And then Sauron, spectroscopic aerial unit for research on optical nebulae. And my favorite one at the end, S H I T or super Yeah, S word, exactly. Super huge interferometric telescope. Wow. So nice. that one actually is from Harvard, and I expect no less from those degenerates. <laughs> okay, Rob, what do you have for us today? So my contribution this week is the fact that Ringo Starr, Alec Baldwin, George Carlin, and Pierce Brosnan all had the same job, and that is as narrator for Thomas the Tank Engine. Cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, not not where I expected to find them all. Certainly not where I expected to find George Carlin. Um, yeah. And so this this fact was fantastic um, in terms of its effect on me as it, someone learning something, because um, it was a it was an absolute experience. So to start with, Ringo 
who's the kind of beloved narrator of the British series Thomas the Tank Engine, which came to the U.S. and was reformatted into the show Shining Time Station, and that's my tie-in, Shining Time Station. Actually, oh, well, I, you know what? I did not even question it, not even for a second. <laughs> not, not at one point when you told me that did I think, that isn't about rising or shining. I just completely accepted it yeah. and moved on. Well, we'll work out R- somehow. Ringo is a star and <laughs> stars shine. And, yeah. Yeah. There we go. But right. when the show came to the United States for Shining Time Station and PBS picked it up, Ringo did the first season and George Carlin took over for him. So weird. It is so strange. And as a listener, this was this show came out in the, the late 80s uh, and early 90s, which was exactly when I was watching it. And watching episodes, which I did because I felt obligated for the show, I realized that I recognized George Carlin from Shining Time Station and his voice is the narrator voice of my childhood. <laughs> and it's so, like, unbearably strange now to think about yeah, it. Yeah, to reconcile. But it, it is his voice. And, I re- like, and also, I should tell you, I watch, like, every episode three times. I own every model from Brio of Thomas the Tank Engine on, on the wooden tracks. And so this, like, was probably more meaningful to me than any listener, and I understand that. And I apologize for all of you out there. But Hey, like, Rob, <laughs> it's okay. It's not... <laughs> It's not about them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is this is my platform. <laughs> I don't have to pay and tell a doctor about how George Carlin is my father figure now. I can tell anyone. Yeah. And if you think you can solve Rob's childhood obsession with trains, you can write to us at, at Fast Machine Pod. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go oh, ahead. <laughs> but but after George Carlin, um, who who did it for the majority of the show. Um, Pierce Brosnan was a narrator for a number of special episodes. What? Um, he did part of the animated <laughs> series, and he recorded an entire season. And then the network said, "You know what? Not not digging it." And they they cut it. They cut his contract. He didn't. His voice was not used. They had two almost complete unknowns do it instead. And then Alec Baldwin, in probably one of his cutest roles, was Mister. Con- They're all, by the way, named Mister Conductor. Um, was the character that they it's played. A family name. As the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Alec Baldwin did it in a movie that played in cinemas, was supposed to be a big kid's hit. I have a review by Roger Ebert from when okay. it came out, and it said, it has straight to VHS written all over it. <laughs> <laughs> and so Thomas the Tang Engine, kind of similar to your, you know, Winnie the Poohs and other, like, childhood stories, came from a, a British author who had to make up stories for his child. It was one Reverend Wilbert Audrey, and his son Chris had the measles. So Christopher was sick in 1942, and Reverend Audrey made up stories about trains uh, that were running around in this fictional land of Sodor. And he would tell them to his son every night, and even after he got better, he kept telling him stories. And his son was so enthralled to the point that he would call out his father if he had inconsistencies. And he'd say, like, no, no, like, James didn't do that. That was the other engine. And, like, he would never go there. And so Reverend Audrey had to start writing them down and eventually publish them. What I find also really cool is that he wrote the first book that was called The Three Railway Engines, and it does not include Thomas. Thomas was a later addition to the the series or the idea of the, the engines of Sodor. When it came to the United States, like I mentioned, it was called Shining Time Station, and I, I put in some effort to find out why. It was called Shining Time Station. And it wasn't for any reason that I thought it would be. In season three, episode 66, uh, which I watched for the show, um, there's a story where the children go back in time and they have to run out into the rails because a carriage is caught. <laughs> the, <laughs> the children have to run out onto the rails of a train track. Well, so they, at the last second, they so hand This them. is a show that encourages children to run out onto the rails of an of a train track. Okay, to to be clear, they fixed the lantern and then handed it to the woman who they sent to run on the rails of the tracks. The kids stayed back long. So what was the light source in this lantern? It was a, it was an oil lamp. All right, kids, run onto train tracks, play with fire. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Rob, the fact that you watched this as your as a child is explaining a lot about you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they they ran out with a lantern to stop a train from hitting a carriage. And they said that he saw the shining just in time, shining time station. Another plotline I really enjoyed was that George Carlin had an alter ego in the show while playing a three-inch tall Mr. Conductor character, which was his evil brother, Mr. Conductor. (laughs) And he he obviously was also played by George Carlin and looked the same, but was just actually George Carlin instead of this really (laughs) nice children's character. 
<laughs> George Carlin as himself was yeah. the evil version. <laughs> so in terms of uh, traumatizing storylines in Thomas the Tank Engine, uh, the first thing that your facts made you think of was an article that was put up by The New Yorker this past fall um, that actually circulated quite a bit all around the internet and Twitter, which is where I first stumbled upon it. Um, and basically, it's entitled The Repressive Authoritarian Soul of Thomas the Tank Engine and <laughs> oh, Friends. Oh, <I'm> <laughs> Does that ring a bell at all, perhaps? There, I, I am looking forward to hearing ah, your summary excellent. Of this. So, basically, the author of this article was herself inspired to write this um, after an exploration of various threads and blog posts and Reddit posts and YouTube comments, um, noting the seeming totalitarian dystopia the island of Sodor, the show setting, as you just mentioned, uh, actually is. And I have to say, it makes some pretty compelling arguments. So I just wanted to highlight a particular episode that was cited as proof of this. And I'm wondering if you recall it as a very avid viewer of the show. I'll bring it on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was an episode called The Sad Story of Henry in the UK, or Come Out Henry in the US. Oh boy. Basically, you have Henry the train, um, who doesn't want to leave his tunnel because it's raining outside. And the fat controller, who's the guy who directs all of the trains to do their thing, apparently, um, orders Henry to come out and says, you know, do your job, get out into the rain. Henry's like, no, I'd rather not go into the rain so rather than you know handle this in a mature way or at least in a way that is fitting of the not very great crime of just not wanting to leave a tunnel they instead wall him up into the tunnel for the rest of his life uh, they just kind of cask in a modulato of modulato this train um, and the last line of the segment is the narrator perhaps George Carlin saying I think he deserved his punishment don't you so, so oh my god yeah, yeah there's there are, few, there are various stories. Uh, one of my favorite as well was there's um, another episode about a double-decker bus named Bulgy who comes to the station and cries revolution, screaming, free the roads from railway tyranny, and he's labeled a scarlet deceiver. Hmm. Thinly veiled what that could be in reference to. Um, this would never have happened house. in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I, I concur. Well, I'll, I concur. I'll refer you to the fact that all of the stories were originally written by like a very conservative British reverend. And so there are real kind of Christian overtones to the show. Just to be clear, um, that fat controller is Sir Topham Hat. <laughs> I'm sorry. And he deserves please, your respect because he runs me. all the railroads in Sodar. But I think I'm being trainsplained right now. <laughs> it, I was going to say man trained, but that sounds <laughs> Now, the really fascinating part is Audrey was a, like, he was a real train fanatic. The idea of walling up a train in a tunnel because it wouldn't come out really doesn't serve the rest of your railroad. Because there's (laughs) there's no way around (laughs) It's a huge oversight. And just a really, like, cut off your nose despite your face kind of move by Sir Topham Hatt. did, Did Henry just go out the other end of the tunnel? Back out? Yeah. He could have, unless they thought ahead and, and walled up both ends, which I don't know that they did. I'm not sure. I didn't read that deeply into the lore. Yeah. Mm. If you know Maybe. what happened to Henry, please <laughs> write in at... Please let us know at Fax Machine Pod <laughs> on, on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah, Twitter, yeah. <laughs> so, question for you, Rob. Have you ever been to Northlands? Um, no. So, Northlands is in Flemington, New Jersey, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, but at least at one time, fairly recently, per Guinness, it was... There is uh, the world's largest model train exhibit. Interesting. Yeah, not too far from here. So I've been to a few large indoor warehouse train exhibits in okay. my lifetime. Um, not all of them were permanent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will say some were road shows. There are model railroads, but also there is life-size, like uh, let's call it short line or scale railroads in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. And that is kind of uh, steam country USA, where model steam engines run all the time. Right? When I say model, I should say real or uh, kind of remade steam engines run with passenger cars and you run along a scenic line and then run back to your station and in this location in the united states is one of the places where you can ride a thomas the tank engine replica train so thomas is a real functional steam engine that pulls your train and they have a few engines from the franchise and i wanted to get to this because the thomas franchise do you have any idea how much it's worth uh billions so, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're both right. <laughs> That's it. So annual retail sales are over a billion dollars a year. It's not far behind what Hot Wheels sells every year. And Hot Wheels like constantly renews and makes new models and is much cheaper to produce. Uh, and it's about half of what Barbie retails still. Oh. 
Yeah. Mattel actually bought Thomas Tangent from the British owners in 2012 for $680 million. Um, and so it is really just massive industry, and they franchise out these engines. Um, so places in England used to do it too, such as Lancashire Railway. However, Lancashire no longer wanted to pay the exorbitant fees Mattel was charging to license Thomas, and so they were one of the railroads that went kind of on their own track, um, but they made up a new... That's the thing about tracks, though, is you, <laughs> you can really only take the one that's there. Your options are limited. Um, but you can now, in Lancashire, England, ride on Jimmy the Jinty. The... God, like, I don't know what that means, but it just sounds, like, bad. It is. Yeah. It is another steam engine with a weird face on the front of it that will pull your kids around on Family Fun Day. And they've written a whole line of children's books to go along about <laughs> oh, Jimmy no. and his steam oh, engine yeah. friends. Are there any totalitarian overtones to that series? These are all hippie engines, actually. It's a, oh. it's a total pushback. Not nearly okay, as yeah. compelling. <laughs> Don't they say about like Mussolini that like if you know, despite everything else, <laughs> he made the trains run on time. <laughs> And the ones that threatened that goal were bricked up in tunnels. So the the last thing, I guess, is I mentioned this had a really big impact on me, learning that George Carlin was this narrator figure in my life. And I was kind of curious as to what other uh, actors and celebrities have influenced my life by voicing things in the 90s. And so I did a quick internet search on a few, few really good lists of actors who voiced parts in the 90s that you wouldn't expect. Those of you who know Captain Planet, Captain Planet was the superhero that was supposed to save the Earth with his eco powers. And um, he had a band of five young people, each endowed with a special natural power. Yeah. Most of them were elements like fire, earth, wind, water. And And the fifth one was heart. (laughs) (laughs) The most powerful of them all. Wow. And, yeah, it was it was a very forward-thinking cartoon, to be certain. <laughs> the villains on Captain Planet, I remember just being, like, really just the evilest of evil. And they did things like use Better. gasoline and litter. <laughs> but one of them from, from season one uh, was a rat villain called Verminous Scum. Uh, <laughs> he played in several episodes in season one. He was voiced by Jeff Goldblum. Oh. Which I did not know. One more from one of the most kind of seminal shows of the time, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. There were just constant new villains being dredged up by um, you know the the two kind of big ones, Rita Repulsa and Lord Zed, who are pulling from other galaxies. Uh, but you had a few instances to see <laughs> one villain whose name was Snizzard. <laughs> Snizzard was a lot of Pokemon. And if it, if it were a Pokemon, it's exactly what you would think it would look like. But so, Snizzard was a large reptile monster. He appeared actually in several episodes. He was brought back to life to fight them again because he was, I guess, so good. Um, it, it, perhaps his best role in the entire series was he played Here Comes the Bride on the organ at Rita Repulsa and Lord Zed's wedding. What? If you didn't know they got married, they did in season five. Um, but he was voiced in all of these episodes by Brian Cranston. Oh my god! <laughs> I thought it was amazing. Okay. And then my last two. These are my absolute top two. Um, every child my age was a huge fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like the goofy comic one. The antagonist is the Shredder, like mm-hmm. the evil Shredder, voiced by James Avery. And that huh. name might not be immediately recognizable. James Avery is the actor who plays Uncle Phil on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Whoa. Uh, and as so soon as you know that, the voices lock in your head, yeah. and it's there forever. <laughs> and it was just, that one blew my mind. Because I was watching both simultaneously, perhaps on the same day. Not simultaneously. I was watching both <laughs> in sequence. One eye focused on each <laughs> Just James Avery's voice coming in both ears. So that one I was just stunned by. And the last one... And this one, so fitting, and yet so unexpected for me. I watched Dinosaurs, which was the Jim Henson production of life-size puppet dinosaurs in a sitcom setting, whose finale was a meteor ending the Earth. Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I'm sorry. Dark. (laughs) Uh, It was a strange show, to say the least. But it was very fun and kind of good. The mother in Dinosaurs, who is just a kind of very stereotypical 50s housewife mother, kind of based on the Honeymooners... She was voiced by Jessica Walter. Yeah. And again, also Arrested Development. 
Yes. Yeah. Another huge tie. She is Lucille Bluth. Yeah, yeah. And then um, Archer's mother and Archer. Yeah. So yeah. she's played Mallory the same Archer. character in three formats. She basically, yeah. Puppet <laughs> cartoon in real life. White digitals, yeah. <laughs> and, it just, and her voice hasn't changed a bit, and neither has her character, but is probably one of my favorite actresses. And so th- those were just mind-boggling. I really really enjoyed finding those. Those are great. Yeah, because of your fact, I looked up a couple of those, too. And not all of them are, are from animated ones, but um, Fergie, like, uh, from the Black Eyed Peas, was the voice of Sally Brown, Charlie Brown's sister, on three Peanuts animated TV specials that were produced in the 80s. Oh, wow. Um, but, the, <laughs> but hands down, the one... I, mean, I actually saw a video clip of this, and again, this is not animated, but it was... You ever, you ever see the show Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Absolutely. Yes. Did you know that Joe Biden had a cameo on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? <laughs> no. Oh. What? <laughs> so it was when he was a senator. This is a, remember the exact year, but he, he was playing himself. And basically there was a you know, main character, Special Agent Greg. Okay. Okay. And so Special Agent Greg, you know, the phone's ringing, he picks it up, and it's Joe Biden. Okay. <laughs> and he's there to tell him that he had nominated him in Congress or wherever for awarding him the best detective of the year. Uh, and then Special Agent Greg is like, oh, that's great. And then Biden's like, oh, well, actually, we had some, like, debate on the floor, <laughs> like, the Senate or whatever. And some uh, said that, oh, we don't know if you're going to be, like, the best detective for the whole year. And then, you know, like, maybe saying you're the best is, like, not quite right. So we decided the award was changed to the somewhat notable detective of the next 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so. Interesting. That. And then, uh, and then he's like, "Okay, thanks, senator," and he hangs up. And he says to the the other person on the show, "Can you believe that guy?" <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this week, I learned that climate change is the reason we have Finland. Hey. Yeah. Okay. One good thing. <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, depending on how you feel about Finland. <laughs> yeah, can, I'm definitely prepared to entertain a wide range of uh, interpretations of whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. But of course, just to clarify, I am not talking about anthropogenic climate change or human, you know, caused climate change, but rather the natural warming of the climate that coincided with the end of the last glacial period. So this warming resulted in the melting of the vast two and a half mile thick in some places, ice sheets that covered northern Europe and Asia, as well as much of uh, North America. And as anyone who has ever carried, like, a bucket of water will know, ice water is really heavy. And, in fact, it was so heavy that its own its weight deformed the Earth's crust downward. And when that ice melted, all that weight was relieved, and the crust started to rise back to its original height. And as a result of this process, known as post-glacial or isostatic rebound, After the last glacial maximum, much of what is now Finland was underwater. And since then, it has been rising up in some places as much as two centimeters per year and will continue to do so for another hundred meters. So that may not sound like much, and you probably wouldn't notice its effect in day-to-day life, but people who live in the coastal areas of Finland do notice that over time, the water line seems to get farther and farther away. In fact, at a time when land is being lost to rising sea levels the world over, Finland's post-glacial uplift means that it is actually rising faster than sea levels are, resulting in a net gain of about 700 hectares every year, particularly along the Gulf of Bothnia, which separates uh, Sweden from Finland. Mm -hmm. And if you're prepared for a really, really dumb Star Wars pun, many Bothnians died to bring us this information. Oh. Oh, there you go. Um, So, throughout the ages, the fine people of Finland have actually had a lot of theories as to why this could be happening. Um, But a popular one was that the water was receding because it was draining away following the actual, the biblical flood that my namesake (laughs) surfed on a rickety ship full of animals and cubits or whatever. (laughs) Many cubits of animals. It was <laughs> at least several cubits were involved in that boat. But it was actually it was Anders Celsius of centigrade fame, who in the early 1740s conducted geological surveys of the Swedish coastline to determine that much of Scandinavia, in fact, not just Finland, but also um, also also Sweden, right across the Gulf of Bothnia, where the, this effect is the strongest, uh, that much of Scandinavia was rising relative to the sea. Now, he, he did this by making markings on the rocks up and down the Swedish coastline, as well as by measuring sea level using tide gauges, which are known as mariographs. 
So modern tide gauges have more advanced capabilities compared to his rudimentary equipment. And so as a result, I propose that they henceforth be known as Super Mario Graphs. <laughs> Fantastic. I was going to say, aren't Mario Graphs the stats that show up when you're picking your Mario Kart card? Exactly. Yeah. It's, you're thinking it's the same. Um, yeah. But of course, it's Mar, like the sea, and Graph, like the measurement, right? So the effects of this are actually pretty striking from an archaeological perspective. Researchers found a Stone Age campsite that was set up near what was then coastline. It is now 125 miles inland. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Furthermore, there are instances of now inland settlements that eventually became modern cities and towns bearing paradoxically coastal names, such as Sandy Cape, or containing words like island or sound. Of course, these are in Finnish. <laughs> I, I guarantee you I will be even worse at Finnish pronunciation than Emily is at French. Oh, please try. <laughs> Anything just to make me feel better. No, you know what? To protect, my, to protect myself from that peer pressure, I neglected to write it down. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> to learn a little bit more about this phenomenon, though, I got in touch with Jessica Noviello, who is a brilliant PhD student in geological sciences at the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. She explained to me that, this is great, she explained to me that, quote, the equations that govern the large-scale flexure of the land is governed by a fourth-order partial differential equation. And after I regained consciousness, she, <laughs> she, she recommended the text Geodynamics by Turcotte and Schubert, while also noting that a dramatic reading of a graduate-level earth science text probably wouldn't translate well in a podcast. This is a dramatic reading of Geodynamics by Donald Turcott and Gerald Schubert. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But it does... It does... Settle in, guys. Settle in. It does contain the chapter, Three-Dimensional Stress, which as a PhD student myself, I understood implicitly. But then it waits six whole chapters for a section about stress diffusion. Which mm. I think is just stringing people along. One chapter per year and you're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll finally be done. Um, but uh, going forward in the book, there's a chapter called Transform Faults, which I assume is plagiarized from a self-help book. I'm going <laughs> to... Okay. <laughs> and you can hear more Geodynamics book chapter names than my, my one-man show, Thermal Plumes in Fluid-Saturated Porous Media and Other Earth Sciences Fart Jokes to Rock Your World. <laughs> <laughs> Oh <laughs> so um, Jessica oh by the way Jessica also said when she referred to uh, fourth order partial differential equations that basically humans took a look at what fourth order partial differential equations would look like and that's they were just like nope and then mm. they basically invented computers to deal with that. <laughs> Fair enough. They were like, we're not, we're not dealing with this. This is not happening. I, <laughs> um, but she also told me about how Earth is not actually the only place this kind of thing happens. So apparently we also see similar results, albeit through a slightly different mechanism, on the icy moons of Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus, um, maybe even on Pluto and its moon Charon. So there, in craters made by impacts on the surface, the land eventually returns to its original level over time. And according to Jessica, craters are where all the action is with regard to rebound. True in high school, too. Yeah. <laughs> what does that even mean? I, laugh, I laughed at that so trustingly. <laughs> if you know, know what that means, please <laughs> feel free to send it over to us at Pod. <laughs> So, um, oh, yeah, Jessica's great. <laughs> she, uh, she was very helpful in explaining to me sort of the, the details of uh, isostatic rebound, which, you know, basically you have to think of as like these, you know, huge masses of land, you know, and, and crust that are floating on magma. That magma is just this like molten rock and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really flow like water, right? It's like basically over geological time, it can act like a fluid. Um, and so when you have something with a huge amount of weight, you know, pushing down, it displaces that magma. Um, and then when that weight is gone, the crust, you know, initially it has this elasticity to it that snaps back. And then as the magma starts to like move back into where it was, it raises that land up. And in addition to this, this idea that like the places where glaciers melted, um, or, you know, ice sheets melted, there's this uplift because of the relief of that weight. The, the places that are around those, uh, those glaciers actually are, are sinking because they moved up in response to being sort of on the border of, uh, of this depression. And so, for example, Scotland, which was, you know, sort of mainly, you know, had the glaciers, whereas southern England was spared to some degree, 
Now, southern England is, is sinking, whereas Scotland is rising up. Um, so there are all these problems that, like, as, you know, particularly as, like, sea levels rise, you know, sea levels are rising and southern England is sinking. There's all kinds of problems with floods. Um, not to mention that, you know, in many places, for example, in, in Finland, um, the uplift is not, like, even throughout the country. So one side of the country is raising up more, uh, like, more rapidly than the other, which can result in sort of imbalances that can change the direction of flow of, like, rivers and various things like that uh, that can result in, you know, big floods on the other end. But there is a place in the United States. If you are looking to ride the U.S. to the very top, <laughs> um, you should move to Juneau, Alaska. Is oh. the one place in the U.S. Yeah. that is experiencing significant rise, similar to uh, Finland. And so, um, in Alaska, it, it's been documented actually. The Mendenhall Glacier is the large glacier that has been retreating at an alarming rate, um, mm-hmm. something along the order of thirty feet per year. It is receding to the north. Um, there are just these just absolutely terrifying, stunning photographs of a, a glacier that was there, and you see it receding along a rock line, like through a canyon or fjord or whatever the, the path it carved out is, and it was at the water's edge, and then 10 years later, it was like far away from the water's edge, and then 10 years later, it's essentially invisible because it's so far away, all taken from the same point of view. But what's happening at the same time is the land is, like you're saying, uh, springing back up, the elasticity, it's rising. And so in 2009, the New York Times detailed one man in Juneau who had built a nine-hole golf course on the land his property had gained that had formerly been submerged um, because it was not being taxed at the rate of a property that size. Um, And it still hadn't been totally sorted out. He has now enough room. This was in 2009. He currently has enough room for another nine holes and has a permit (laughs) for construction to finish his 18-hole golf course that he personally will have gained from the rise of Alaska. That's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, there are places like in, in Sweden along the coast where there's this island, you know, there's a, there's a town there. People have lived there for a really long time. But over time, the channel that separated this island from the actual coastline has, you know, shot out. And now basically there's a land bridge uh, to this island. And the people on the island are scared because they like, you know, they've sort of been living their own little lives on this island. And now they don't, they're like worried about like burglars and stuff, like coming across and like stealing stuff and then escaping back to the mainland. And like some of it sort of reeks of xenophobia, but like, <laughs> but it's also like, you know, these <laughs> poor people, like they have just sort of been accustomed to this and their cultures, you know, you know, grown up around the fact that they are, you know, islanders and yeah, now they're not. They're a close-knit so, community, not yeah. so much anymore. Yeah. Mm. So I think that like countries like this are the exception, the ones that are on, on the up. Um, and I think we're much more familiar with like the idea of lost lands. And I looked into the lost lands is actually a term defined as once above sea level masses that are lost, either held by mythology, ancient maps, or, and this is in quotes, catastrophic theories of geology. Um, but of all the lost lands that we may have heard of, um, I think... Many of us with Western culture are familiar with Atlantis, and that's right. the kind of typical lost land of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, there is a land called Mu, and this is the Pacific equivalent of Atlantis, uh, except that it's imagined to be probably larger than the continental United States um, wow. sitting in the Pacific Ocean. And several people have like mapped out uh, now that we're having a uh, much better kind of sonar and, and light-based methods to see the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, sure. people have said, oh, this, this must have been Mew or Mew must have been over here, like levels that are not so far below the ocean surface. But uh, kind of new techniques are unearthing uh, what may have been ancient lost lands. All right. As promised, now we have a pub trivia style quiz based on the theme for this week, which I will remind you is rise and shine so this quiz will be about things that rise and things that shine i will be your host and rob and emily will be trying to answer these questions um and if you feel like you can help please feel free to shout at your phone or anything and then maybe if you believe hard enough they will they will get just clap your hands the tinkerbell policy applies it'll work I'm, I'm actually quite excited because in, in the course of doing this, I thought about a lot of other things that rose and things that shone <laughs> in, in finding a fact. And so I may have a shot. So Emily, you, will you be the rise expert here and I'll be the shine expert or, or cause that's, we're both on well, shiny facts. Ah, that's which is true. Tricky. Yeah, I, I was the rise people. and you were the shine. Yeah, so we're, we're a total mm. rise deficit. Well, I guess, you know, what? I'll try and rise to the occasion. Hey! 
All right, well, if you guys are ready, uh, we can get started. Question one. In speaking about his vision for the United States generally, President Ronald Reagan borrowed a phrase used by the 17th century Puritan John Winthrop, who used it to describe his vision for what would become a major American city. What is the phrase, and for an extra challenge, what is the city? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Uh, no, and then the DeLorean rises. No, (laughs) they have roads in this city. All right, it is uh, the shining city on a hill. Yes, yeah, that's it. So Ronald Reagan used that phrase, and he was quoting uh, Puritan John Winthrop, Mm -hmm. who was still on the uh, Arabella, which was the ship that was taking them there, and he was describing uh, what he saw as his vision for. Um, what would eventually become the sort of major city in this in this colony that they founded in North America? So, I'm imagining. I, I would say Boston. It is Boston. Yay. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of hills in Boston, so it works yes, great. There are. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> His metaphor became literal. <laughs> what is the name for the shininess of a metal? Oh. Oh. So this is um, the luster. Luster. There yeah. you go. Absolutely right. That's it. Nice. Yeah. Um, nice. Do you know? Uh, why metals are shiny? Okay, metals. Yeah. Um. Hold on. Let me see if I know why metals are shiny. Do so, you know why metals are shiny, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> so I I could explain. Deliberating quietly, but okay. I don't totally understand it. <laughs> so, I, so I read I read this stuff about it, and it was never very clear. And at some level, it has something to do with electrons. Okay. But to be fair, that is All a right. pretty reasonable summary of basically everything. <laughs> Why? So, it has something my, to do with electrons. My only, guess, my only guess was going to be like the free electron That's pool. Basically, yeah. Okay. It's that, and they, they're Whew. freely moving. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> the Shining, starring Jack Nicholson and directed by Stanley Kubrick, is based on a novel written by whom? Really? No. Stephen King. Okay. <laughs> Sounds legit. All right. So I'm going to swap that question out. <laughs> you can keep it. No, we got it right. You can keep no, it. No, I'm swapping that question out. That's not the question anymore. The new question <laughs> Pretty judgy is, trivia uh, host, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because she just had Sorry. a Stephen King trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. The new question, number three, <laughs> because Emily was... <laughs> I was dissatisfied yeah. by that question. Is, I always you're have gonna, an extra one for you're this gonna exact ask reason. Us that. <laughs> is um, in what country would you find a point on Earth that is farthest from the center of the Earth? Ooh, okay. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So, there there are two factors. So I would say somewhere equatorial because of the bulge, mm-hmm. and then somewhere altitudinal. Okay. I don't know if that's natural. Nope, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, um, so as see, like there are tall mountains in Africa and South America. Yeah. So as you go around the world, that's pretty much it for continents. Um, well, yeah. uh, that that are equatorial. That are, yes. And so, <clears throat> in this situation, in a pub trivia night, <clears throat> I would say Quito, Ecuador. Because it's a city that people know, and it's in the mountains. The Andes are very high. Well, the question was, what mm. country is it in? I would, so I, I would say Ecuador. Damn it. <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes, indeed. The Fantastic. honor of the point on Earth farthest from the center of the planet belongs to a volcano called Chimborazo Ooh. in Ecuador. Um, and it is not... While, of course, Mount Everest in Nepal is um, the highest... Uh, mountain on Earth and is the highest elevation above sea level, the fact that the Earth is an oblate spheroid means mm-hmm. that areas around the equator bulge out far yeah. larger than, than uh, the height of Mount Everest could compensate for. And Chimborazo is, in fact, the Dude, yes. farthest point from the center. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Next. All right. That, that, was, that was just brutal <laughs> trivia logic right that, there. That was. That was. <laughs> According to the song Early to Bed, being early to bed and early to rise makes a man what? Well, Healthy, wealthy, and wise. But but did you say early <laughs> Did you say early Tibet? As in the country <laughs> where Mount Everest is? Because that's a different song. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or... The answer is healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
That is from 1917's 55 Songs and Choruses for Community Singing. It was also in Poor Richard's Almanac. I was going to say it was a Ben Franklinism. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. All right, this one's going to get you. I know it. <laughs> okay. You've been playing to our strengths of old Ameri- old-timey old American <laughs> phrases. And- <laughs> the most unfortunate thing is it's also the things I'm interested in. All right. Henry Ford was in the possession of a test tube that allegedly contained the last breath of what other famous inventor? Uh, Thomas Edison. God damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cool. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> they were good buddies. They were they friends. Were. Yeah. They were really and good Henry friends. admired him greatly. So Edison's son held up a test tube to Edison's mouth as he died, mm-hmm. sealed it with paraffin wax, and had it sent to Ford. Yep. But as charmingly weird as that story is, Henry Ford is no person to admire. In fact, he was the only person, the only American cited specifically in Hitler's Mein Kampf, and allegedly he had a picture of Hitler on his desk. Oh, that's quite a um, <laughs> If it had been just the first one, I wouldn't have felt so bad. There's like, actually there's actually a theory that Henry Ford's uh, secretary was a German spy whose basically their job was to like stoke Henry Ford's like paranoia about the Jews. Oh, um, and it's like this crazy theory about uh, I mean I don't know, I don't know maybe true I I don't know but there there is a theory that. Um, there was, you know, some level of espionage in sort of making this very influential man um, have, you know, sort of stoking these, you know, opinions that made him a leader of the America First movement and trying to oh. keep them out of World War II. Wow. Interesting. I mean, Ford, also, interestingly for a Nazi tie, Ford made an entire settlement in South America called Fordlandia. Really? Yes. And it was his effort to try to basically industrialize and make a, a, a process out of rubber making but they the rubber trees were actually originally amazonian rubber trees but they wouldn't grow in a farm there because there are too many natural pests and predators and bugs and bacteria and so they grew much better in other places like the philippines and other islands that they had Hmm. been made rubber farms where there were no natural predators and no natural fungus that could that could damage the trees so the town failed completely in terms of being an industrial rubber town but they built a city that looks like a Midwestern American town with wow. a, a post office, which I don't know who they sent mail to with that post office, but like a church, um, like a, a doctor's office. And it was just like a dirt road American town wow. in the middle of the Amazon, where now with the new knowledge I have, I assume all the Nazis fled immediately after World War II on their Definitely. way to Argentina. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you guys know Henry Ford is also the only American reference to another work of literature? A better um, one. Um, hold on. It, it was 1984. No, it was A Brave New World. It was A Brave New Brave World. New World. Yeah. Oh, Different nice. dystopian thing um, by Aldous Huxley, yeah. So with as well as you guys are doing on this, uh, surely you must know um, what colors you could get the Model T in. Well, you could get it in any color you want. As long as it's black. So long as it's yeah. black. Yeah. Very right. nice. Very nice. God, what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> the more I hear about this guy, the less I like. <laughs> Wasn't he the guy who said the customer? No, he did not say the customer's always right. That's not his thing. No, uh, more like the customer's always far right. <laughs> <laughs> My customer's always right. <laughs> Damn you, hippies. <laughs> the musical Hamilton's motto <sighs> is rise up. Yes. So I think it's fair game. The real life counterpart to what character from the musical Hamilton? was tried for treason, but later acquitted after being accused of raising an army to capture New Orleans, as well as other American and Spanish territory, in order to establish a new country under his rule. This was post-Louisiana Purchase. It was. I'm going to give, like, a semi-answer and let me know if it's right. Okay. It was not Hercules Mulligan. Okay. Okay. I was thinking because of his... The only inclination I have for an answer here is okay. just the only name that I know, which is Aaron Burr. Yes, it was Aaron Burr. Okay. Was it real? What? Yes. Wow. So following okay. Aaron Burr's interaction with Hamilton that resulted in Hamilton's death, he fled to South Carolina and eventually came back. Mm. He was acquitted of murder both in New Jersey and New York. Uh, okay. And then he went back to Washington, finished his term as vice president. But after that, basically, his, his pro- political prospects were ruined. At some point during the rest of his life, before he died, sort of in obscurity, practicing law in New York, he was basically just going around New Orleans being like, the Spanish suck, 
let's take all their land and also make me the king or president etc you know this, mm. is, this is a rough reenactment but uh, <laughs> uh and then word, word got back to thomas jefferson um and who was president at the time um and eventually they convened a, a trial um and he was captured he actually escaped they recaptured him and he was tried for treason uh but actually john marshall who was the uh the Supreme. chief justice of the Supreme Court. And uh, Thomas Jefferson were like not on good terms at all, and it's suspected that the reason oh. that he that John Marshall ended up uh, being a big force in his acquittal was just that like Thomas Jefferson really wanted him to be convicted of treason. Um, <laughs> wow. So he was he was basically let off. And oh. but anyway, Aaron Burr really is consistently just a jerk. All right, that's all we have for you this episode. Uh, before we sign off, I want to thank Anthony Antonelli, the incredibly talented musician who provided our original theme music for Fax Machine. So as well, fun. Yeah, yeah, really good. So good. <laughs> as well as Jessica Noviello. You can learn more about Jessica's work on Twitter at, at Jessica Noviello on her YouTube channel, where, among other things, you can find a documentary she made about paleontology and paleontologists called Behind the Bones, as well as her appearance as a guest on the outstanding podcast PH Drinking, in which she talks about her research on Jupiter's icy moon Europa while drinking Angry Orchard in an episode entitled Europa Best Served Chilled. (laughs) Nice. That's cool. And if you have any comments about what you heard this episode or have any facts that we missed that you'd like to share with us, or if you just want to check out some supplemental information and pictures and fun stuff that we'll post about the facts we mentioned in this episode, please check out our social media accounts over on Twitter and Instagram. They are both at Facts Machine Pod. Thank you guys for listening. Bye.